Morning, church family. Uh, thank you for your patience this morning as we were getting guitar things figured out. Um, behind the scenes, I definitely broke a string on my guitar, and Jeff is a superhero for letting me borrow his. I know I'm not doing it justice, but to God be the glory. So, um, we are, as Western human beings, we are easily distracted. While this is not a new phenomenon, we find ourselves in the midst of a culture in this Western world that has such a short attention span. According to recent research, which will be behind me on the screen, this will hopefully gather your attention for the brief moment that our attention span lasts. The average human attention span has decreased by 25% over the past 15 years, And congratulations, humans, we have a shorter attention span than the goldfish. Woo, we did it. All right. Our average attention span is 8.25 seconds, which means I've already lost most of you. But the average audience attention span, I'll give you some grace, is 8 to 10 minutes, which means I'm going to lose you in about 6 to 8 minutes. If you want to know my thoughts about this, I would love to talk with you later. If you are an office worker, on average, you will check your email 30 times every hour. And the average smartphone user will pick up and touch their phone over 1,500 times per week for an average of three hours and 16 minutes of screen time per day. And I think that's generous. For those of you that have iPhones, you should know this morning, because at nine-something, Steve Jobs from the grave sent you a screen time report. Don't worry, we're not going to have a confessional where you come up and you share how much time you spend on your phone. That's between you and Jesus and your phone provider. And I share all of this to bring to this point. We don't have the perseverance of attention. We watch or consume so much, or probably too much, to be honest, and we don't have the capacity to retain what we have consumed. And herein lies the tragedy. We've lost the ability to sit in awe and wonder. We quickly snap a picture of the landscape to swipe over to our Instagram feed to upload that pretty picture when we don't want to just sit and absorb the beauty We might have our favorite musical artist who drops an album, or we watch a stunning movie, and we talk about the next album, or we get excited about the trailer we saw instead of just talking about the album that we just listened to or the movie we just watched. You watch the movie, and you're like, oh, man, I just can't wait until that movie in eight months. And then you watch that one, and then you can't wait about the next movie. And we just keep looking forward to the next thing. For those of us that maybe aren't media consumers, maybe you're book people and you sprint through a book so you can add it to your Goodreads list, which is a soft flex, but okay, and then you sprint to the next one because, I mean, come on, your New Year's resolution isn't going to fulfill itself, right? You said you were going to read one book a month and you got to log it on your Goodreads, which for those of you that aren't book people, Goodreads is like the flexing site of book read nerdery. Like you upload your books, it's awesome. And my wife is offended because she has a Goodreads account. And in the sports world, we struggle to enjoy an athlete's greatness and to just sit in the greatness because 
we're either constantly critical of them, we're bored by their amazing skill they display game after game, or we engage in meaningless debates about whether that guy is greater than the other guy or the other guy or the other guy. And it's hard for us, I know the soccer guys right here are talking about Messi and Ronaldo as we speak, but... We engage in all these debates and we get so fixated on like the next thing and the next thing and the next thing that we become distracted. So let me ask a question. Rhetorical, please. I don't need to hear your responses. How many of us have become bored with Jesus? We give him our attention maybe in the morning and you're like, no, I'm on the good side of that. I give that eight to ten minutes. Great. What are we doing with the rest of our time? We hear songs like Death Was Arrested and we move on because we're like, oh yeah, Jordan's going to talk and then we're going to do this and I got to make my 1230 reservation over at the steakhouse so Jordan better hurry up and get to the point. Have we become bored with Jesus? When we read his account in the gospel, do we sit in awe and wonder or do we think about the next thing on our list? Hear these words that Jesus used to address the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2, verses 2 to 4. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And so, church family, this morning, my aim is to reintroduce us to the love we had at first, which is Jesus of Nazareth. Don't want to sprint to another thing or talk about concepts or anything like that. Today, we are just going to bask in Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less, but Jesus. My prayer is simply this, that the Spirit would soften our hearts, till up the fallow ground in our souls, and powerfully yet personally remind you and I about the majesty, power, wonder, love, and greatness of our Savior. If you're ready for the journey, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being a good and worthy God that nothing that we can do can add to your glory. But we just want to see you. We want to experience you. We want to hear from you. Our souls are weary. Our bodies are tired. And Jesus, you said to come to you all who are burdened and weary and that you will give us rest. Would we learn to take your easy yoke for your burden is good and light? Jesus, have your way this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's where we're heading. We're going to go on a three-part journey throughout the Bible to reintroduce ourselves to Jesus of Nazareth. And we're going to do so in three distinct scenes. One, Jesus in the Old Testament. Two, Jesus in the Gospels, and three will land in our teaching text. So first, Jesus in the Old Testament. If you're fairly new to the way of Jesus, or maybe you aren't, this claim can either seem wild or confusing or both. 
Didn't Jesus show up in Matthew? Like Mark, Luke, and John, like that's where we read about him. Like Jesus in the Old Testament just seems kind of odd. But before we move onward, let me just take a brief moment if you are confused or shocked or both. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God's design and order, sin stained the world God created. Though God could have burned up the world he created and started over again, he instead chose to enact a rescue plan to redeem and restore what he had intended. And in order for that to happen, God had to establish a bridge between himself and fallen humanity. And the only way that he could do that was through himself. Insert Jesus. And so as the Bible Project so beautifully states, and I've said this before, but I want to give credit where credit is due, the Old Testament cast a shadow of the Messiah to come in that the New Testament fills in that shadow with the person of Jesus. And so what we're going to do is look at a couple examples in the Old Testament about this shadow that is being cast. Because if you read the Old Testament with Jesus in mind, the Old Testament no longer just becomes a list of laws or old things that happened a long time ago that have no relevance. But as you read the stories of the Old Testament and the prophecies about the Messiah, they begin to become alive because you know that they are going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to go through a few. There's going to be a bunch behind me. I'm not expecting you to memorize this for next week. Jordan Chapel's not going to quiz you. But this will hopefully be able to get us an idea of the shadow in the Old Testament that is past. And then we'll look at how Jesus fills it in in a moment. So the list should be behind you. I told you it was a lot. In Genesis chapter 3, um, after Adam and Eve had fallen, that there was one who would walk in the cool of the evening, which is what we would call theophany or Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. Um, so Jesus would be the one walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then later in Genesis 3 verse 15, we see that God is addressing the serpent and that God said that there would be enmity or separation between Satan and humanity and that he would crush his head and that Satan would bruise his heel. That would be Jesus. Already from Genesis chapter 3, God had a plan of redemption involving his son who would crush the head of the enemy. Not just like give a little whip to the enemy or a little like, no, no, no. Like he would crush the head of the enemy, which is why when we sing death was arrested, we celebrate because death has been arrested. That Jesus defeated death, defeated the enemy. And from Genesis 3 onward, the people of God are yearning for that enmity in Genesis chapter 3. Then we move forward a few chapters and we see this character named Noah who is described as a righteous man who walked with God who walked with God, and he would become the embodied covenant of this deliverance from the sinful world around him by saving him in an ark and would cause all of creation to be wiped out and for God to start over with Noah. And Jesus is that greater Noah. He is a greater righteous man who is God, and he would embody that covenant of deliverance through his body dying on the cross, blood shed out, so that we would be delivered from the penalty of our sin. Jesus is also the greater Isaac. Isaac was the promised son of Abraham. 
that God had called Abram and Sarai to bless the world through their offspring and that their offspring would be more numerous than the sand on the earth and that God promised that son. And even at an old age, Isaac was born and was the promised son. But then it, it takes a little bit of a plot twist in Genesis chapter 22 when God calls Abram to go to the mountain to sacrifice his son. And it's hard to read Genesis 22 in light of Jesus and to not be enamored at the parallels between Jesus going to Golgotha and Isaac going up the mountain. Isaac carries the wood on his shoulders, was told he would come back three days later, and that Abraham prepares one and only son to sacrifice Isaac on that mountain. But God chose to spare Isaac and sent a ram for the sacrifice, and yet Jesus bore the wood on his shoulders, went up the mountain, and God did not spare his son, but allowed Jesus to be sacrificed on our behalf. We go on, Jesus is the greater Moses. Moses is the one who was called to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery into liberation and into the promised land that God had called them to. And that even as Moses was staring at the burning bush and God spoke and said, I am that I am, that as we'll look later, Jesus is the I am. And that Jesus, similar to Noah, but in this case, that Jesus is dripped all over the pages of the book of Exodus. The pure spotless lamb who had to be shed, blood spilled over the post, that a innocent one had to die for their deliverance. Then we go on. Jesus is the greater Levitical sacrifice and the ultimate scapegoat. I know this one seems kind of out of pocket because we talk about the main characters and that's great. But let me tell you, if you read the book of Leviticus, words are hard. If you go through the book of Leviticus with Jesus in mind, it's a good book, y'all. I know sometimes it might get boring because all these sacrifices require all these specific steps. But if you realize that Jesus' death on the cross, that his sacrifice means we don't have to do that anymore. The price was paid once for all. That's why we don't have an altar up here and you're, you didn't bring your farm animals here. So I, the priest, had to slaughter your animals so your sins could be forgiven. We don't have to do that anymore. Also, I wouldn't be able to do it. I don't have the stomach for that. I probably would have gotten a job elsewhere, to be completely honest. So if you were expecting me to slaughter a lamb, like, wait till Jordan shows up next week. But in Leviticus chapter 16, and this is the one Levitical passage I wanted to bring out, there's this God-ordained day called the Day of Atonement. On that day, one day a year, there would be twin goats that would be presented before the priest. The priest would cast lots to see which goat would be sacrificed for the sins of the priest and the people, while the other one would be called the Azalel, or known as the scapegoat. And on that scapegoat would be written out all of the sins of the nation of Israel, would be placed on the goat's head, and would be sent out into the wilderness as a symbol of their atonement, as a symbol of their freedom and forgiveness. And that once again, I don't want to just drive this point home so it becomes stale. I want it to fall fresh on you. 
that Jesus didn't just die for your neighbor's sins, didn't just die for like 20% of your sins, that the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross, that as he was pounded into that board with nails and as he breathed his last, that his death brought us life. Like our sin has a severe cost and it cost Jesus his life. And so we come into this place and we let that fall fresh because we couldn't do it on our own, but Jesus can. And Leviticus 16 is a reminder that Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat. We don't have to wait once a year for our sins to be atoned for. They can be here and now. Now you simply come before him and receive the free gift of grace, of salvation, and forgiveness. We don't have to wait for the blood of a lamb because the blood of the lamb of God has already been shed. Jesus is also the greater David, the unassuming boy who eventually turned king and slayed giants. David's giant was Goliath, but Jesus' giant was the penalty of sin and separation between humanity and God. Going into a couple of psalms that Jesus fulfilled, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected and had become the cornerstone. In Psalm 22, David penned this, but Jesus quoted it on the cross by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And later on in Psalm 22, that he was poured out like water and all of his bones were disjointed. They pierced his hands and feet. They could count all his bones. People looked and stared. They divided his garments among themselves and cast lots for his clothing. Psalm 16, that Jesus would not be abandoned to Sheol, that the faithful one would not see decay, prophesying of Jesus' resurrection. That the resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament and that Jesus fulfilled that. Throughout Isaiah, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, the son of the virgin, the child to be born for us, who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Priests, Prince of Peace, that he would reign on David's throne, establishing a prosperous dominion that will sustain justice and righteousness, that Jesus is the shoot that raises forth from the stump of Jesse, who will have the spirit of the Lord rest on him and will rule with justice and peace, that Jesus is the suffering servant who was crushed for our sins and the punishment that brought us peace was on him and it is by his wounds that we are healed. Spirit of the Lord would rest on Jesus and would empower him to bring good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort and provide for those who mourn, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. And there's a couple more, but I'm going to pause there. Old Testament seems to paint a pretty big picture of this Messiah to come. Not just like a decent guy who could give a really good message and dress nice and do an occasional good thing. Like this was a magnificent standard and a magnificent picture of who this Messiah would be. This wasn't just an ordinary prophet, an ordinary pastor, like just a righteous guy. That this cast, this shadow that was being cast was huge and had major impact, not just on our eternity, but on our present. This Messiah was going to change things forever. And he did. And he does. 
and he will forever. So let's fill in a bit of that shadow. Let's look at Jesus in the Gospels. Before we do, like I mentioned, the attention span. I know I went way over eight to 10 minutes for the group attention span, but let's bring you back in for a quick second. Hey, let's bring you back in, just in case if you didn't hear before. So we're going to look at Jesus in the Gospels, but before I give my list of things, what does Jesus mean to you? What is a characteristic about Jesus what has he done for you that means a lot to you personally? Many of the things that have been shared, I'm probably going to talk about again, probably share some new things too. Hopefully these aren't brand new or revelatory. If they are, welcome to Jesus. The reason that we gather here on Sunday mornings isn't because we have nothing else better to do, but the gathering of God's people is a celebration of Jesus. For those of us who claim our faith to be found in Jesus, he is the pinnacle, the fulfillment. He is the object of our affection. He's the reason that we live. He's the reason we have hope. And he's the reason we're here. So let's look a little bit at Jesus in the Gospels. Once again, there's going to be an exhaustive list behind me. If you're a note taker, I probably frustrated you a lot, and I'm so sorry. (laughs) Let's get to it. In John 1, 1, Jesus is the word and the word was God and that word became flesh and he tabernacled, he dwelt among us. Not later, John the Baptist sees him from far away and he says, this is the lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. That Jesus gives us access in John 4 to the well of living water that springs up in us for eternal life. Jesus is the bread of life and promises to never leave any of his followers spiritually hungry. I'm going to read that again because I think someone in this room needs to hear this. Jesus is the bread of life. And his promises to never leave any of his followers spiritually hungry. If you feel spiritually hungry, look no further than Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world and promises that anyone who follows him will never walk in darkness again. Jesus later in John 8, I told you I'd get around to this, Exodus 3. Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. So began the Pharisees' attempt to try to stone Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the great physician. He is the healer of diseases, liberator of demonic oppression, the one who raises the dead to life, opens deaf ears and blind eyes. Jesus is the one who values, respects, loves, and bestows honor on the culturally lowly and outcast, male and female, slave and free, sick and well. Jesus is the rabbi who invites anyone who would choose to follow him. Jesus invites anyone who would choose to follow him. First century Israel, the invitation to follow a rabbi was very closed. They had a max number. But Jesus opens wide the door to enter into discipleship with him that anyone who would choose to follow him. He's the one who seeks and saves those who are lost. Jesus also gave James, Peter, and John a miraculous catch of fish. He multiplied the loaves and fish not once but twice. He turned water into wine. He rebuked the storm. And as a 30-year-old man, he had 12 close friends. That might be his greatest miracle. 
Besides defeating death and all of that stuff, a 30-year-old man had 12 friends, y'all. Like, I don't know how much more miraculous you can get. Jesus is also the one who taught with a divine authority. He spoke in culturally relevant parables, radically introduced the inclusive kingdom of God that was among them, and he wowed the crowds as the son of a carpenter became the most compelling communicator in human history. Jesus invites us multiple times. The Son of God, God in flesh, invites us, broken, fallen humanity, many times throughout the Gospels to ask, to seek, and to knock. And he teaches us to pray with the authority that he did. And lastly, Jesus empowered and commissioned his followers to go and live the life he modeled for us by making disciples of all nations, teaching them what he had instructed, and for us to be his witnesses wherever we went. There's something different about Jesus. What he came to do, what he taught, how he lived, how he treated others, how he pushed back against religious systems that weren't pointing towards the ultimate goodness and glory of God. Jesus is a worthy savior. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No one can come to the Father. No one can experience genuine love. No one can have an untainted hope except through Jesus. And so it's also interesting as we look throughout the Gospels and we see the person of Jesus and how he acted, it's also interesting to notice how others responded to him. Because once again, it's one thing to see Jesus and to see him for who he is, but he interacted with other people. He didn't do all of his things on an island, but there were others who saw him, who heard him, who experienced him, and had a response. Let's check a few of the responses before we move forward into our teaching text. Once again, list behind me. Note takers, I deeply apologize again. When John the Baptist saw him, and as he was talking about him, he said that he was a man whose sandals he was unworthy to tie. Which I don't think John the Baptist saw him as Jesus, as his homeboy. You remember those youth group shirts, like Jesus is my homeboy, with like Jesus with like the peace signs or whatever. If you have that shirt, great. He's not your homeboy. He's your savior. Anyways. Let's keep going. The man who is possessed by legion in Mark chapter 5, the man who is possessed by legion, saw Jesus from a distance and cried out, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? That even the demons know who Jesus is. Simon, Andrew, James, and John heard Jesus say, follow me, for I will make you fishers of men. And they all immediately dropped their livelihood to follow him. Nathaniel, after a brief conversation with Jesus, called him rabbi and confessed that he is the son of God and the king of Israel. The crowds heard the Sermon on the Mount and they were astonished because he taught like one who had authority. Two blind men on the side of the road heard Jesus was coming and they said, have mercy on us, son of David honoring and recognizing his kingship. Zacchaeus, who sprinted to climb up a sycamore tree to merely gaze upon Jesus as he walked by, 
quickly and joyfully invited Jesus to his house, and he dedicated himself to more than right the wrongs that he had done. And there's so many more examples, but the last one I'll mention is that John on the island of Patmos fell into a trance, and Jesus laid his hand on John and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive. Jesus is alive. We don't serve a dead God. He is alive, and he will be forever and ever, and he holds the key of death in Hades. Let's bring our attention back eight to 10 minutes. Here we go. So all that being said, let me summarize it for you. One, Jesus is the Messiah. Two, when somebody interacted with Jesus, they had to respond. Throughout the Gospels, there's no passivity because passivity when you encounter Jesus is actually rejection. So that means... Welcome to those of you who have ears. You have a choice of how you respond to Jesus and how I respond to Jesus. We have a choice to make about what we think and what we believe about Jesus. And if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if we believe the words written in this book about him, and as our sermon series title says, that Jesus changes everything, everything. And if that's true, then maybe we need to come before him and let him soften our hearts. Let him reintroduce himself to you. Maybe not with the preconceived notions that you might have about him, not even what others might say about him, what the podcaster says about him, what the pastor or whoever, but for you to listen to Jesus yourself. To approach this word without bias. To approach prayer without that other voice in your head about what you think Jesus should say or shouldn't say, but to open yourself up to reimagining who Jesus is. Now, before we get back to our teaching text, uh, what I'm going to do, and this is going to require some level of participation on your end, but I'm going to read the teaching text this morning from the Amplified Bible. And as I do, I would love for you to just close your eyes and to picture Jesus, whatever that looks like for you. Uh, often Jesus, and he talks about it in Revelation chapter 3, that Jesus wants to sit at a table with you. If that's helpful imagery, you can do that. Um, one image that helps me out is I imagine I'm in a garden and Jesus walks up to me in a garden. I don't know why that helps me. I'm not a gardener, never will be. But for some reason, that hits me deep. Maybe it's at the coffee shop and Jesus walks into Mad Goat, probably leaves a great tip. But maybe that's your helpful thing. But if you don't mind closing your eyes, I'm going to read through the teaching text this morning. For it pleased the Father, for all the fullness of deity, the sum total of his essence, all his perfection, powers, and attributes, 
to dwell permanently in him, the Son. And through the intervention of the Son to reconcile all things to himself, making peace with believers through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were at one time estranged and alienated and hostile-minded toward him, participating in evil things, yet Christ has now reconciled you to God in his physical body through death in order to present you before the Father holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And he will do this if you continue in the faith, well-grounded and steadfast and not shifting away from the confident hope that is a result of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which gospel I, Paul, was made a minister. The passage is on the screen behind me if you want to open your eyes. And I hope there is a couple words or phrases in this passage that stuck out to you. There is so much for me that as I read this this translation of this passage that stood out to me, but one in particular that I felt like the Lord was leading us into as I wrap up my time this morning was towards the end of verse 22, that he had reconciled you by his physical body to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Because I don't know about you, but when I was young, often the gospel was presented as just a ticket out of hell. And there were the super scary movies about what like the book of Revelation is going to be like and the woman had taken the mark of the beast and they're like, oh, and everything just like, if those films are your favorite, awesome. But I was more scared when I was a kid of like, okay, I'm going to go to Jesus because that seems bad. that's not the gospel. The gospel is being drawn into the goodness of Jesus. That his gracious and compassionate and loving arms are ready to swoop you up, not to make yourself holy and blameless before you come to Jesus, but it's that as you go to Jesus, as you are being reconciled to him, he's the one who makes you holy. He's the one who makes you faultless. He's the one It's him. He is the one that does the transformative work of making you clean and new. You can't pull yourself by the bootstraps and make yourself holy. It is only through allowing yourself to be renewed through the presence of Jesus, through the empowerment of the Spirit. And he is asking us to yield ourselves to that work of the Spirit so we can be holy and faultless and blameless because our world needs consecrated followers of Jesus. Lukewarm Christianity isn't going to win over Danville. It isn't. It's not going to win over Bismarck. Not going to win over Hoopston or Westville or wherever you call home. That if we desire to see a move of God here, it requires God to move in me and in you and that we would set ourselves aside for the work of Jesus in our lives to allow us to reflect him. And as we seek to 
to conform ourselves into the image of Jesus and to allow the Spirit to do that transformative work in me. And as I go to my workplace, as I go to the marketplace, as I go to the sports game, as I go here, there, and everywhere, to allow that work of the Spirit to do this new thing in me, to allow me to be holy and faultless and blameless, that the world around us will see that we are set apart for something different, for something that has hope, that has unconditional love and grace that this world cannot understand. And as we allow ourselves to undergo that work, the world around us will see the hope we have in the gospel. And the passage ends, I, I love this, that this gospel that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Would we be a church that becomes a servant of the gospel? a servant of Jesus, and that we would allow Jesus to shift our agenda. We would allow Jesus to shift our motivation, and that as we conform more to Jesus, and as we have ears to hear him, and we move where he moves, and as we speak what he speaks, that we would see the world around us starting to hear the good news of Jesus, and that sons and daughters would be brought home. And so as we wrap up, I just wanted to show you a picture real quick. Matt, if you want to cue that up. This is from the Alpha Youth series. Uh, for those of you that are in Alpha Youth, this is in a few weeks, so getting you prepared. So what this picture is supposed to do is it's supposed to give you a metaphor or a picture of life with Jesus, Jesus being the pool. Like there are some people that are just like the lady in the blue is just super chill. You got the girl over here with the laptop, not really concerned about the water. Um, that dude up in the top right is my guy. The dude with like that snorkel thing, bluish purple, like that's my guy. And then there's the lady taking the selfie, the dudes on the side that are just too cool for school and don't even, like they don't even know they're really in a pool room. So I want to ask you a couple questions. In regards to life with Jesus, which one of these are you? Maybe you're the guy in the teal trunks who's just barely dipping his toe in the water. Maybe you're the one on the side, the lady that has a towel wrapped around her. Maybe you attempted to jump in the water and maybe you were hurt by the church. Or maybe you were like, yeah, this is really cool, but I heard a really awful sermon and now I'm kind of out of this thing. Or maybe you're the lady that's taking selfies and you're using your time at church as like your really cool, like be real opportunity so your friends think you're holy or whatever. Where are you? I don't need to hear your responses, but... I just want you to be honest. When it comes to the way, truth, and life of Jesus, where are you at? But the more important question, where do you want to be? If you're the person who's got their toe just barely in the water, do you want to dive in? Do you want to experience the depth of the love of Jesus. Maybe you don't know what it'll look like because if you're the guy on the diving board, he's about to find out very soon that once you jump off the diving board and you're in midair, you got no other option than to get in. And maybe that scares you because maybe you've never seen it displayed before 
Maybe you haven't seen what it looks like to be the lady with the swim cap just swimming all free and beautiful and good. Maybe you don't know what that looks like. Or maybe you're the person who's sitting on the end with the towel on and you're ready to get back in the game. Maybe you just need to dip your toe in the water, and that's great. Because Jesus is gracious and he's patient. He's way more patient than any of us can give us credit for. And so what I want us to do is just in the next few seconds before we transition into our last song, I just want to give you some time to encounter Jesus. Maybe there are some things that are weighing heavy on your heart that you just need to lift up before him. Maybe you've been in a season of plateau or dryness and you just want to cry out to Jesus that you just need a fresh outpouring of his spirit. Maybe you're frustrated because you're yearning for those things but you haven't seen any fruit. Maybe you're swimming in the deep water and you just need to enjoy some time with him to continue to swim. I don't know where you're at, but I do know that Jesus loves you and that Jesus cares for your soul. Whether you're tired, excited, burnt out on religion, Jesus wants to meet with you. And so in these next few moments, just encounter Jesus. Pour out your heart, cry out to him. As Revelation 3 says, See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, that I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is knocking on the doorstep of your heart. I encourage you to let him in. So let's spend some time with Jesus and then I'll pray and then we'll continue on with what we have this morning. Jesus' words cannot describe how great you are. You are better than we can imagine. You are more holy than we can imagine. And yet you are closer than we give you credit for. In the highs, the lows, the pain, the suffering, the seasons filled with doubt, the seasons filled with joy and triumph, the season of testing and the seasons of being exhausted that you are there. You promise that you never leave us or forsake us. So Jesus, I just pray that we would fall in love with you again. Forgive us, God, for the times that we have treated you as less than, that we've given priority and time to other things that that honestly don't matter. And so Jesus, even as we sing this last song and, and as we eventually leave from this place, would you continually be the thing that we keep our eyes on as we go about to, to meals, to conversations with friends and to other obligations? Jesus, would you go before us? Would you go with us? Would you protect behind us? We just pray, Jesus, that, that we would once again just fall in love with you because you are worthy.
You are worth our devotion. You're worth our time. You're worth our energy. Because greater is you than anything in this world. Would we forsake the rest to cling to the better? And that's you. We love you. We pray these things in your sweet and precious name. Amen.